So so last night I woke up at like 4 a.m. because I had this really weird dream about cats and the and they were like extra dimensional creatures and I was the only human who knew that and I had like this dream existential crisis of of knowing that I had to live with knowledge that could not be imparted to anyone else and I was fundamentally divorced from it from the conceptual existence of a shared reality. And then I realized in the dream that isn't every idiosyncratic moment that realization. And then that woke me up and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I stayed up making a, a LARP inspired like tabletop fusion game about being a milliner in the Victorian age while jamming to the Red Army Choir. Uh, I'll, take, I'll take your silence <laughs> as being stunned by the sheer gold that is my insomnia. That that's amazing. Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the call now. <laughs> Just slowly back Just, away. I'm, I've I've literally turned into that gif of Homer Simpson backing into the hedge, <laughs> right, <just laughs> fading fading away into the hedge. Uh, although you have my sympathy because oh. insomnia fucking sucks. Oh, isn't it the best? Oh, it's just awful. I but, love I love getting nothing done and then being a zombie all day. Uh, oh, yeah, radical. That sounds great. But mm -hmm. on the note of troubling existential crises and the inability to conceptualize a shared cognitive universe, shall we segue uh, onto the film that we're talking about? Let us have a seamless segue now. <laughs> Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Segway! Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. Um, and this episode is a very special episode because... Very special episode. Uh, Ash, do you want to explain why this episode is so special? <laughs> so, so last, last month we were very busy. There's a lot going on in uh, Horror Vanguard that um, uh, you're going to find out towards the end of this month. Very exciting things. So last month we couldn't uh, really cut loose. But uh, I, I'm, I was the special birthday boy in February, and the special birthday boy gets his special birthday treats. And my treat is forcing John to watch uh, incredibly obscure art house horror movies. Uh, and you know what? I am okay with that. <laughs> That's good. That's good, because this, is, this won't be the last time it happens, and it's going to get weirder from here. So this, what we're talking about today is um, a film from the 1980s by a British avant-garde filmmaker called John Smith. Um, it is called, the film is called The Black Tower, which he released in 1987. There is a full uh, copy of it on YouTube in the show notes for this episode. We'll put the link so that everybody can watch it. Um, do you want to explain? Why don't we just start at the beginning? Like, explain what the film is about and like why you wanted us to, to watch it. So, um, just for our listeners, the, the film only lasts about 22 minutes. It's a very quick watch. John, John Smith is very experimental in his film. Um, the, the premise of The Black Tower is a uh, man living in London who we believe to be as a writer. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know much about our narrator. We never physically see him. Uh, is uh, stalked and haunted through the city's streets and the countryscape by a giant black tower. That's that's the plot. That is the film. As <laughs> as Ash, Ash said, uh, it's only 22 minutes long. It is not like anything else I've seen in a very long time because like we talk we talk a lot um about, you know, how the kind of cultural tastemakers of the moment have identified this kind of horror renaissance or this art horror. Um but that is not art horror. Right? This is art horror because this is this is weird and deliberately sort of playing with the conventions of cinema. There are on, yes. there are no characters really on screen. We only see or encounter our narrator through voiceover. There is some incredibly interesting and um, quite bizarre cinematography. 
Um, so like just because just because Hereditary gets loads of five star reviews, it does not make it art horror, right? It just makes it horror that's been yeah. sort of like acknowledged by the cultural gatekeepers of of our mass media landscape. But this is far weirder. <laughs> I think right? is, I, is I the best wanna, way to talk f- about it. I just want to flesh that out. That you know, on, on a broader level, all horror is art. You know, every, every as we piece repeatedly of horror said. is art, as, as we as we constantly say over and over again. But there there is a very palpable line between um, horror that can be mass marketed, but still is somehow highbrow or attempting to reach towards a higher a higher brow than like your slasher films. Yeah, and and uh, John Smith's The Black Tower, which which is very concerned with engaging with the art form of cinematography and horror conceptually. Yeah, this and is... I don't I don't I don't think John Smith has ever referred to this. I, I read I've read a bunch of his interviews and I don't think he calls this a horror movie. But Haunted by a Giant Black Tower is horror, and that's how we're gonna roll with it. Hell yeah. This like as like you were saying, this is not a film that you would ever see getting a kind of mainstream cinematic release. No, yeah, Warner Warner would never put this up in a theater for people to go watch for like sixteen dollars a ticket. Um but yeah, there's so much in in this. It is dense and elusive and very strange. Um, and I mean that it's, it's, it's in the best way. Macabre too. Uh, even though even though nothing actually happens. Um, so so what? Where do you want to start with this? How how should so, we? So I'll give I'll give a more a more detailed and brief brief overview of kind of the plot of, of the film and its structure and what what it goes through. So, so our our, narr- our unnamed narrator is voiced by uh, the director and writer of the project, John Smith. He is he goes about his daily life, uh, and then he he sees in the distance a giant black tower, which he's never seen before. And and like all of us, you know, when we see a building we've never seen before, our first reaction is kind of like, huh, weird, never seen that building before. And then he goes on with his life. Um, and then and then we kind of we go with him as he as he goes on errands. He goes to the shop. He visits. Uh, interestingly, one of one of the very detailed things he does is he visits a friend of his who's locked up in jail. Yeah, and he sees the black tower there, um, and then he increasingly becomes confused and concerned because this building appears wherever he goes. It's not in a fixed geographic spot. It's simultaneously outside his bedroom window downtown. Um, he he eventually he, uh, goes through a psychological breakdown over this and doesn't leave his house for for what we, what's intimated to be months. No, no, yeah, He's, he he says yeah. it's been months. It's been absolute months. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been months, and and he runs out of food, and and all he eats is an ice cream truck will drive by every day, and he'll just pop outside, buy some ice cream, and run back in for for fear of encountering you know the black tower. And he stops looking up at all, and he's just always looking directly downward mm. to avoid seeing it. Uh, so someone calls an ambulance uh, on him because this guy's never left his house in months and he's just getting progressively sicker and sicker. Yeah. Um, he, he goes to a hospital, he gets some, uh, you know, psychiatric or psychological treatment and they advise him to go to the countryside to recuperate a Which very is a, British way of getting better. I was about to say, that's a very 19th century thing. Like, we'll, yeah, we're yeah, that's off very to old a, school. Off to a sanatorium in the country. <laughs> But um, so so he, he's out in the country and he recovers, but then he sees the tower again, and this time it's out in the countryside. Yeah. But instead of being afraid of it this time, he approaches it with a concern and an interest in it and a bit more of a level attitude. And he, and he kind of explores it and then he walks inside. And then we cut to our second narrator, which is voiced by Anna Hatt. And the second narrator is discussing how the first narrator or a character we believe to be the first narrator has died. And she's kind of discussing her experience visiting his grave. Mm. And in the distance, she sees for the first time a strange black tower. Cut and, to and the that's, And that is where our film ends. It is 22 it is minutes. Tower. It is... As I, I know I've said this a lot already, but it is weird and unsettling. Um, yeah, it is, it, is, it is simultaneously... <sighs> almost difficult to watch at certain points because of how just kind of visually and auditorily disturbing the tower's presence becomes. Mm. But then there's also this, uh, especially towards the end, like a very playful attitude towards the art of cinematography. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. That's that's one thing that John Smith, and that's what first drew me to John Smith is in his in his like interviews and in his descriptions of his work, he talks a lot about ludology and the sense of play and wanting to approach cinema as a playful medium and less as a documentative kind of flat medium. Yeah, so it's really about what this film does to you. Yes. Right, as a viewer, rather than what is this film about. It's almost like horror wants to do something to your body. You know what? That sounds like a great episode for a podcast. <laughs> right? That, that really does. It sounds like it's a great episode, maybe even a great shirt, you know, maybe even a great Patreon to sign up for. <laughs> In terms of, like, the traditional rules of horror, like, there's very little here. There are no jump scares. There are no, um, like, big uh, sound cues. There's no violence. There's no, um, like, POV shots of, like, uh, our victim being stalked. Right, yeah, there's no blood spray, no corpses, no demon beasts. But what it shows is, like, I mean, on a really superficial level, this film really underscores the point that actually, like, horror functions so well when it allows the audience to create the horror for themselves exactly and going off of that i want to ask you a question yeah what is the black tower Ooh. well i, this I think is... that the, the, this is a great film studies 101 question for for this movie well here's here's my uh here's my reading of it that um the black uh the the black tower is um nothing there's no, nothing at all. That's um, a good one. Because there are loads of moments where, like, um, the the tower like fills the frame entirely, mm-hmm. uh, and there's nothing on screen. There's there's nothing there. There's just a kind of absence, and that absence becomes something yeah. tr- truly haunting. And, and about the first fourth of the movie is in total darkness too. It's just a black screen with the narrator's voiceover. So we have a kind of. It, to me, it's it's a really interesting film to think about how do we deal with nihilism and nothingness. And we are terrified of it, but we are aware that its possibility lurks behind the surface of mundane existence. And ultimately, we're drawn to it and we have to confront it. And how do you do that? Well, according to kind of like the existential tradition, you confront that with your being towards death. So no wonder you die, because it's in dying that you kind of have to deal with, with nothingness. How's that for an answer? That is a really good, solid answer of what is the Black Tower. I like it. So what would you say? What is the Black Tower? Our narrator goes on this quest to find out what the Black Tower is. You know, in, in his words, he's looking for what it is used for. Yeah. And and for me, this kind of speaks to our present condition under late capitalism. Oh, you know, th- interesting. So, so, so think about the city that you live in or, or the cities that you've passed through. Right? Th- think about all those domes, those towers, those silos, the factories, all the structures that dot the landscape. How many of those do you know? Like, what are their names? What are their histories? Who built them and why? What are they used for? And if you don't already know, how, how would you even find out, right? You, you know, which door would you walk in? Who would you ask? Is there someone you could call? You know, you, could you really even go into the building to know it? And like our narrator, we too are haunted by the structures around us. They oh. pop up and are torn down like phantoms passing through the world of the living. In capitalism, we have no say about what gets built where. Communities are beset by these specters that are raised and loom over us. We are surrounded by ghosts that we cannot and are forbidden to know. Our landscapes, cities, are barren graveyards of communal knowledge and potential. And that is what I think The Black Tower is, at least in my reading of the film. I really like that. And this kind of reminds me of something I was thinking about earlier to, uh, this week, um, of the kind of intrinsically haunted nature of capitalism. Ooh, yeah. and, I was, and I was thinking this precisely because I was walking through uh, the center of the city, which at the moment is full of cranes um, and full of like mm-hmm. construction sites. And it's 
it's a genuinely unsettling feeling when you can kind of feel a place like being forcibly remade in front of you yeah uh, and um and you what you can feel is not just the presence of something new but you feel the absence of something that was there so mm-hmm. like and what causes that is the is the kind of inextinguishable drive to constant accumulation to constant expansion that underpins capitalism as a whole so capitalism is intrinsically haunted because it's haunted by everything that it's consumed everything that it's built over everything that it's demolished because you know as derrida points out like every absence is also the presence of something that was there and you can never you can never entirely expunge that presence right you can never entirely get rid of it so with uh, I really like that point that you know we're surrounded by ghosts uh and capitalism can cannot help but make more of them. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I I live in a rust belt city and my my landscape is just full of these empty decaying factories that are slowly one by one getting torn down and replaced with like these gaudy, gaudy modern uh apartment complexes that no one can afford and subsequently no one lives in and are mostly empty. Because they're just like like asset dumps for for these giant conglomerates, yeah. And like that, there there's a history being sw- stripped away. There's a history being annihilated there. No one remembers who used to work in those factories or what they were for, or you know the lives that were made and lost there. Or alternatively, if the if the history is not um, kind of destroyed completely, it's commodified because so many of these places oh, yeah. will be like the old steelworks and you're like yeah yep this this there is you're trying to sort of co-opt a degree of kind of like working class history and cultural capital in order to sell me an overpriced two bed condo <laughs> like mm-hmm. and and it's interesting too because some of those I, I would say that most of those are are as you suggest like horrible corporate ways to scam us with the history of a place but but some of them, like I know um, where I live and uh, when I was living in the UK, where I was living there as well, there's a lot of um, places that kind of adopt that, you know, rust belt working iconography as yeah. the only way to hold on to their history and their legacy. Yeah, totally. I mean, you can see that in places in Manchester where you walk through mm-hmm. like the the Northern Quarter, which is like a, oh, histor- yeah. a historic part of town. And what you'll see is these kind of holes that have been kind of punched in the social fabric of the place because mm-hmm. there'll be a building that's been there for you know two or three hundred years that's now just this kind of gaping scar so i i honestly think that maybe we, we our two respective readings are not in contradiction to one another like oh, not at all the uncanny nature of uh like urban existence and capitalism necessarily provokes a kind of existential question yeah, and I, I, one of my one of my favorite real world examples of this is in the UK in the Calder Valley. Um, a lot of the homes in the Calder Valley are are brick, but they're all stained black, and that's because the Calder Valley is where the factories used to be, and all of the soot would kind of rain and sink down in, and that would get absorbed by the brick and stain them black. Yeah, but a, a lot of homeowners have um, power washed the the sides of their building to remove all of that soot and remove that blackness. Yeah, so you'll sand, and, you'll sand, you'll literally sandblast away working class history. Yeah, and and there, there's there's a lot of debate in the community because people who feel like you know the the their roots in the proper Yorkshire soil like they should respect the black brick exteriors, but then there but then there's the counter argument of they want to move past that they want to move past the kind of like pain and suffering that was that industrial past. And so, so this does beg an existential question of how do we use the physical um, architecture of these histories? And, and there's the kind of bigger question as well of like, you can't ever get, totally get past something, right? Yes, that, good point. Like the I Black mean, Tower, it never leaves us. Like this is a very, a very Marxist point about history, right? History is determining. So in a way, whilst we can kind of operate an imminent critique of history, we can never step outside of it. We can never, you know, be something uh, that is entirely and cleanly separated from everything that came mm-hmm. before us. Absolutely. And, and from a Marxist point of view, that's that's a kind of responsibility and a great moment of revolutionary potential. 
But from a capitalist point of view, that's a problem because pre-capitalism, despite all of the attempts to completely expunge it, you can't totally because that's what constituted, you know, that's that's part of the historical roots of capitalism. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, we can't yeah, totally. We can we can never totally like contingency is a thing, right? <laughs> like we're prom- we're promised like you know stability. Uh, like this is the problem with a kind of uh, that that Fukuyamaist end of history na- narrative. You know, it promised us like we were finally done with all that. We could put all the old ghosts to rest. But like anyone who's read a gothic novel will know that if you don't pay attention or pay the sufficient respect to the mm-hmm. dead. They're gonna come and get you, <laughs> right? The, the the Black Tower, in many respects, is is that Gothic ghost of our past. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if if we don't if we don't look it straight in the eye and respect what it's here for, it's going to kill us. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting thing. I don't think the Black Tower kills him. No, I, I don't. I don't think. I, I think it in, indirectly is the cause of his death, but yeah. I don't think it's a malevolent force. No, not at all. I mean, and this is, there's a kind of long historical horror tradition of like, how do you talk about that which cannot be shown? Mm-hmm. Right? Because whatever, whatever the Black Tower is, the Black Tower is a symbol, right? And we think of language and we think of symbols as a means of kind of giving shape to the world. But like language is such a, even visual language, the visual language of cinema is such a kind of fallible fragile tool there's these this uh, you know whenever it first starts appearing it's always like framed very centrally it's this kind of Mm -hmm. unyielding mass in the center of the frame that you know you can't get over you can't get round you can't explain away uh and you just have to deal with it you have to kind of engage with it and the only way that we can do that is in a kind of like uh, uh we don't have the the tools to do it perfectly if you know what i mean oh yeah you know like any kind of engagement with 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 what cannot be represented you know it'll it will as if you've ever read lovecraft ends in either madness or death so i i I was i was gonna say this 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 brings up uh lovecraft a famous weird fiction and horror writer and eugenicist monster um (laughs) (laughs) uh it should be equally famous for both for uh Uh, establishing the weird fiction as a as a thing and also being a huge racist yeah definitely he would have had a youtube channel if he was alive today is 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 his i think his level of racist activity yeah definitely i mean he's 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 like you know he's uh far worse than like you know pewdiepie racism Oh, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm talking like he would have like 90 hours of videos about why Anita Sarkeesian is wrong about something she said once four years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there would be yeah. like there would be like videos talking about you know all of the edgiest uh, alt right bullshit. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. He, he 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 would be like a Shapiro skull science kind of guy. <laughs> break break out the calipers. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, he would have so many calipers. But, but um, but, one of his the, the quote. That he's probably most known for is is and I'm going to paraphrase here because I'm not remembering it exactly, but it, but it's uh, the the oldest and strongest kind of emotion is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Yeah, and I I I, th- I read the Black Tower partially as kind of a negotiation of this Lovecraftian appreciation of fear, right? The the Black Tower is something that's totally unknown to us and our narrator. Right? Even when the narrator finds it and explores it and enters it in the end, he's, we still never find out what it is. We still never know it. Yeah. But in, instead of um, being destroyed by, by this fear, the narrator resolves it by making an attempt to know it, by trying to bridge this gap to something incredibly difficult. And I think that that's, that's, that's an answer to that kind of Lovecraftian approach to fear. Yeah, I mean that's that's always the thing, isn't it? It's it's an encounter with the the noumenal. You know, you get we get so Absolutely. many kind of establishing shots of like just ordinary phenomena in this film of like the bus going past and like uh greenery and foliage for the countryside and you hear the noise of the radio. Uh but like every so often in life there are these kind of moments where we kind of go through something that forcibly 
and often quite traumatically reminds us that so much of that is um like unimportant and, and sort of superficial in a way and then you you encounter the numinal realm the world as it is stripped of its kind of artifice and and mundane phenomena and in lovecraft and and in this it ends in it usually it ends in death because the the numinal yep. is is the kind of point of obliteration of human subjectivity I, I think that one of the important points of this and this is something we'll touch in uh towards the end of the episode is that you know in in the lovecraftian weird when you encounter the unknown you're the first thing that happens is your mind is obliterated right you can't withstand yeah. that encounter it's it's too much and and this narrator goes through that you know you know as he encounters the black tower he can't withstand what this is and it, and it does topple him for a while but he he finds a way to negotiate and navigate through that experience. Yeah, I think I that, mean, that um, it creates a very thing, positive way to, oh, to read the ending. But go on. One one thing I was going to say is that I wouldn't necessarily compare this directly to Lovecraft, but I oh, would no. compare it to the work of Thomas Ligotti. Yes. And oh like, yeah. Because like Ligotti's short stories uh, are full of like moments in which the kind of true weirdness and misanthropy and malevolence of the universe is kind of like cosmically revealed to us mm -hmm. uh you know lovecraft the horror is that beyond the realm of human reason there are the shoggoths and cthulhu and the elder gods um but for Ligotti, the horror is like that beyond the realm of like human phenomenal existence there's literally nothing there's yeah. there's and and what's worse is that that nothing does not care about you at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's what made me think that this is a really interesting kind of cinematic meditation on what nothing looks like. Yeah. Either, so so uh, segue. <laughs> another, segue. Another great segue. <laughs> one day, one day we will actually learn how to uh, segue in, in a manner that doesn't cause me to have to do some awkward editing <laughs> uh, in post but but that's we need a good segue sound effect <laughs> right yeah. you know because like got the, this, we've got the scream now i'm proud of the scream the scream it, that's our equivalent of like the batman logo and the diddly yes! diddly diddly. <laughs> that's literally what i was thinking i was trying to find a way to to make the batman logo sound effect in a way that wasn't too copyright and fringy but i, I gave up and settled with the scream <laughs> So what are we segueing to? Ash? <laughs> so so we're segueing to these. There there is not just one tower in this film. There is a second tower. Oh yeah. And, and I wanted to talk about uh, the other tower. So there's a sequence. It's about um, eight minutes into the film where a, a regular tower, uh, a, a non mythical, just normal looking tower, flashes over a scene of some treetops in London. And, and and this is a very harsh sequence. Like the audio is strobing along with the vision and it's kind of hammering you. Yeah, yeah. And and that, that's a motif that Smith plays with throughout this piece. But I think in, the, in this sequence, it was especially jarring for me because it was just this very calm uh, treetop shot and then a regular tower just, and it's kind of like hitting you over and over again. It was very surreal. Just sort of phasing in and out of existence almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, but But this tower was spectral and haunting in the same way the Black Tower is. Um, but it's worth pointing out that this was a real tower. And there's a segment in the movie where our narrator goes to the local shop and he asks the shopkeep, like, hey, have you have you seen that weird tower? What was that thing? And then and the narrator goes, oh, yeah, they knocked it down. You know, whatever. Yeah, they demolished and, uh, it. They demolished yeah. it like last week. Yep. And but we but we and then the narrator is relieved for a while. And he's like, oh, that explains that explains why I saw it. And then it was gone. This all makes sense now. But he finds out that the tower that was knocked down was not the black tower but block housing yeah 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 i was thinking i'm so glad you brought this up yeah yes and i, I was wondering if you wanted to really quickly explain to our non-uk listeners what block housing is uh yeah so just a quick brief um yeah so for for non-uk listeners um block housing is pretty common in um older like mid 20th century housing estates in big urban centers particularly in london um mm -hmm. where you know post after most of the country was flattened during the second world war there was a huge drive to kind of give people uh places to live and so the way that they did this was like big concrete tower blocks um yep. apartment blocks um across huge swathes of the country there's um 
some famous ones in Sheffield. There's loads in London. Mm-hmm. There's loads in Manchester. There were, were loads in Manchester. Um, and um, for a while, they were kind of promised to be like this new way of living um, that was appropriate for the 20th century now that we'd finally been through the horrors of a war. Um, and they very quickly... Um, and they were social housing as well. So they were housing yeah. housing that was provided for working class and low-income people by the local authority. So if you could not afford a house anywhere else, then you would have a chance to uh, have a council house. And it mm-hmm. was they were, they were promised to be good quality and uh, you could get a lifetime tenancy. Um, you could not sell the house, obviously, because it no. wasn't yours. Yeah. Um, but what you could do is that you could have a house for as long as you needed it for as long as you lived uh and you could know that um like your family would be taken care of basically that the, like the pressures of the housing market would be kind of taken off you um and then so in, in the modern context however <laughs> in the modern context by the time this film comes out in 1987 um so by that time there is uh what's called uh, the right to buy policy, which was introduced by the conservatives where you, you, instead of uh, passing on your uh, council home uh, back to the council, you uh, as a tenant had a right to buy it. Um, and what this meant is that social housing became massively depleted. Um, yes. Councils and local authorities no longer had the same revenue from the rent. And so they became increasingly dilapidated. Mm-hmm. They, they became increasingly scarce Yep. Um, it became increasingly difficult for them to be maintained. They were often privatized. Um, and these private landlords were not necessarily interested in maintaining the property. They just wanted to collect the rent for the for the council. Uh, and I mean, it's been, it's been a couple of years now since it happened. But one thing that I was thinking about uh, when... I think it might be the same thing that came to my mind when I saw that scene too. Watching this scene was what happened in Kensington in London with mm-hmm. Gren- with Grenfell, the Gr- Tower, Grenfell Tower fire where working class people who had like begged their landlords for years to do something mm-hmm. about the deteriorate you know the, the deteriorating condition of this social housing were ignored and then you know hundreds hundreds of people were burned alive in their own homes when the entire yeah. tower went up like an inferno um, which is, you know, social murder. It's yeah. it's it's neoliberalism brutally killing the working class. Um, and I couldn't help but think of that while watching this tower. Um, you know, there's this kind of contempt for social housing. Uh, there's this Thatcherite ideology that, like, mm-hmm. you should be a home owner. You should own your own home. You should start to. You should. You shouldn't treat home or the the idea of a home as a as a kind of right. But it should yeah, be. Yeah, it's, it's not a it's right. An it's a it's an, it's asset. an asset to accumulate, uh, which is disgusting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's that sequence but, where they were the tower flashes. Was like, yeah. was like, you know, it, it, you're watching you're watching this film from like 30 years ago, and like 24 months or so ago, you know, that weird tower. Oh, did, uh, what happened to that tower block? Oh, yeah. You know, it's now this black column of ash that mm-hmm. stands in the middle of one of the richest boroughs in London. Yeah, it's deeply, I, I was actually... deeply haunting and deeply affecting watching this watching this film in the wake of uh, the Grenfell Tower disaster. So, so watching that sequence, um, I, I was actually a, a, when I was in London, a friend of mine took me to Kensington to kind of see the area where the Grenfell Tower used to be, and and she was kind of describing the site and. And it yeah. mirrors so perfectly this like kind of placid shot of treetops, and now there's no tower. Yeah, and and that that that, that sequence in this movie just completely paused me. You know, more more so than any part of this film, but because of just just how brutally it was depicting something that wouldn't happen for another thirty years. Yeah, it was. It's like sort of chillingly prophetic. Mm-hmm. You know, Derrida talks about this in Spectres of Marx, where he says that. You know, he takes that famous quote from Hamlet that time is out of joint, and it's watching watching this is like a deeply hauntological moment because yep. you realise that something that happened thirty years ago is actually speaking to the current condition now, 
Um, it was in the news actually just a couple of weeks ago that there's another tower block where residents, you know, now they say we don't want to be the next Grenfell Tower. Yeah. Because, you know, their letting agencies have done no repairs, that like the building is leaking, there are like mm -hmm. pools of water and electrical cupboards, and it's like, this is going to get more people killed. Yeah, that, that, that second tower really really speaks to the the idea of we do not know own or or any longer have a relationship with the buildings that surround us yeah you know, with with the idea that like between between the the atrocities and and horrifying loss of life in events like grenfell and and just little things like um like the the anti-human architecture of of like anti-homeless spikes or like benches that you can't sleep on and, and slanted concrete planters and things like that. Yeah. You know, like our, our, the architecture of the world around us is becoming increasingly hostile to human life. Yeah. And, and uh, smaller as well. Like mm -hmm. we're given, yeah. we're given less and less space. Like we, that's being taken away from us. Like there was a study that came out this year over in the UK that like residential homes have actually gotten smaller over the past like three or four generations so like new homes uh back in the late 40s and early 50s in the middle of that big home building program you know it was a big deal that you would have a front and back garden you would have mm -hmm. like good it like you know you would have three bedrooms you'd because it was con the concern of like the elite class was like if we do have to fight another war we can't have all of these soldiers being like brought up in cramped polluted environments but now it's like new build flats are increasingly smaller. You know, there is no such, there is no such kind of desire to actually provide accommodating accommodation, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we have a similar, a similar thing going on here in the States in that it, it used to be moving to rural and suburban communities was cheaper than living in the city. Yeah. But now, now the inverse of that is happening, right? All, all of the wealth has flooded to rural areas and, yeah, and now, yeah. in, in order to live in a rural community, you have to not only be able to hold down a job to pay for everything, but you have to be able to drive 40 minutes to get to the grocery store because there's no public transit and there's nothing closer to you. And, and likewise, drive a similar distance in the opposite direction to get to your job, yeah, the yeah. hospital, the schools. And so, so living in these larger, expansive, open spaces has become increasingly locked off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, I think now we're seeing the kind of desperate housing shortage in Britain where their social housing has become so depleted that councils are desperately trying to build but I without, think um... without like without this idea that like we have to I think one of the kind of key political questions is like how do we dislodge this Thatcherite notion that like housing is an asset and instead kind of have a universalist approach to um, this this kind of intrinsic right you know, basically, how do you kind of demarketize something that's been so yes. thoroughly commodified as property? And I, I think that's part of this movie's question about us not knowing the architecture around us is that there is no housing shortage. That's the myth. There's plenty of housing for people. It's yeah, that yeah, yeah. all of this housing is empty because we've been locked out because we treat housing as an asset and not a fundamental human right. Yeah, totally. I mean, there are more empty houses in London than there are homeless people in the country. Yep. So, and that, that is also true in the United States. There, there are more empty buildings than there are people to put in them. So why don't we? Why don't we just? Why don't we just do that? <laughs> right, like, like, like very, very literally. If if the quality of human life and basic human rights were, was at all the concern of the system, this is literally a problem that is solved overnight. Yeah, I mean, by this putting was... by putting people who do not have homes into empty homes this was something that so many um kind of activist groups raised after grenfell because um they they kind of rightly assumed that people who had survived this were going to be um just kind of forgotten about um, oh yeah and so they were like well kensington is full of, of like incredibly nice homes which are empty so what's the problem like, yeah right so so i I walked through um Chelsea when I was in London last and and it was it's just so empty, yeah, nobody lives there no nobody like I, I saw like 
maybe five people who, who actually like were, were in homes like the, the, these places are just like asset holdings for rich weirdos yeah you're basically walking through a bank vault yep well yeah yeah whilst, absolutely whilst private security tell you not to stay too long and it's yep, like i was gonna say the, the majority of people i saw there were private security guards telling me to move along and and like like day cleaners gardeners laundry and it's and all of that labor is not to maintain anyone's home. No, that, yeah, it's it's to maintain an asset for, for like, like an oil tycoon's fail son. <laughs> who who spends nine months of the year on his yacht in the Caribbean. <laughs> right, I was, I was gonna say who's probably like floating off the coast of Ibiza or something. And it's like this this notion that you know, we we don't know uh kind of the ground on which we stand is getting increasingly true one of the really common things that's happening now is like when urban redevelopment happens private companies will uh, not just put up buildings but they will maintain ownership rights on all of the land that surrounds yes. the building yep. so like if if like if you're walking through the city and you're like you decide to sit down on a bench outside the building because like you're tired or you want to sit down and drink a cup of coffee in peace they can come out and say, you're on private property now, move. Mm -hmm. and like this desperate desire to privatize, to squeeze every last possible drop. And this, of, is, this is true of, of a value. lot of spaces that also look like public spaces. Yeah, that absolutely. Park that, that you're near that could be locked up in a private holding. Yeah, absolutely. And so they might be fine letting you drink a cup of coffee there. But if you organize like, like if, if you try to organize a protest or if you happen to be, you know, the wrong skin color or ethnicity, you know, yep. all of a sudden you'll find, you know, private security guards showing up to kick you out. I mean, that's already happening at universities. Like universities are already clamping down on the mm -hmm. right of students to protest, which yep. strangely enough does not seem to be a concern of all the people that you constantly, constantly hear complaining about free speech on college campuses because these people oh, don't yeah. give a fuck. I know, I know. We talk about like the hilarious grifts of the right, but that is like the er grift. Oh yeah, is, I mean that's, is, that's like, been oh, my going free on. Speech rights, but but it only applies when you're like saying that they can't like I don't know dress up like Hitler, but it doesn't apply to like people protesting for housing rights or something. Yeah, like Dinesh D'Souza wrote uh, a oh, book on God. on tenured radicals and like illiberal, politically correct nonsense on campus back in like the late late nineteen eighties. Oh, we now now that we're talking about Dinesh, we've entered the dangerously high IQ zone. <laughs> I'm gonna have to lower the IQ gain on on the recording here, otherwise I'll blow up my laptop. Uh, um, a man who hates socialism but seemingly loves to get publicly owned on Twitter. But um, bump, yeah, literally, literally one of the least intelligent humans I think it is possible to make. But yeah, this this notion that like. I mean, like, isn't it bad? It's bad enough. It's bad enough that we're forced to kind of rent housing. And it's like now we're going to be renting the very public space that we move through. Like, mm -hmm. because that's that's all privatized. Like, the commons, once again, has been enclosed. This leads me to another segue, if, another if you great, won't mind. Another classic horror vanguard segue. <laughs> we are so good at segues here at, at the horror grant. Segways horror, are weird, you guys. Segways are weird. They're really <laughs> difficult to pull off. I'm really hoping that by the time we have guests on the pod, we can segue a little, a little bit more... Uh, smoothly smoothly but uh given, given that that is our next episode we are not gonna pull that goal off <laughs> Ooh, teaser teaser bum, 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 bum. uh so what does that lead us on to what does that lead us on to uh so it says give me a second here to to scroll through my notes and piece this part together but yes one second So, so one thing, one thing I want, I wanted to talk about this during the Elvira episode, but honestly, we had so much to say yeah, about yeah. that film that we ran out of time. But I think that this film is an even better example of a lot of these ideas, maybe because it's very intentionally a uh, critical art piece in addition to being a, a spooky movie. But I wanted to talk about the Situationist International and and some of their groovy art ideas and how they kind of overlay on onto this weird art horror film. Oh hell yeah, let's talk about the Situationist International. 
Let's do it. So, uh, so for our listeners, the Situations International were a weird uh, French art collective. And uh, broadly, broadly drawing their inspiration from 1960s Marxism, the yeah, surrealism da- da- of the da- 1930s, art. and a whole bunch of other really cool stuff. Yep, and been there. They were. Uh, I think it's it's fair, it's fair to kind of very quickly and overgenerally summarize them as into like weird installment art and weird like acted art. Yeah. And um. Th- oh, go on, go on. No, no, I was just agreeing. Oh, I know. Awesome. You, I love it when it's that a shock. <laughs> it doesn't happen often, but Ash always you, enjoys it when I agree with him. <laughs> you know, honestly, I think we we unless unless we're covering a Rob Zombie episode, we generally agree on everything. <laughs> Typical left-wing echo chamber. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I, I know that the, the, that is the, the most accurate stereotype of the left, is is we agree on literally everything except for Rob Zombie's films. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very difficult, you know, to kind of have to, um, you know, get, get a group of leftists together and they'll be fine mm-hmm. on everything, but as soon as you mention Rob Zombie, that's where left unity just falls apart. <laughs> oh, oh my god, it's, uh, Rob like... You you try and get a group of Rob Zombie third worldists and anarcho zombists into a room, <laughs> it, in a fight is going to break out immediately. It is just chaos. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we've maybe wandered slightly off what we were talking a, about. A, a little bit. Our, our, our segue has become a detour, or perhaps, as the Situationist International might describe it, an act of derive. Ooh, do you want to very quickly, for, for listeners who are maybe not hugely familiar with the Situationists, do you want to uh, kind of give a quick run through of some of the key ideas? Yeah, so so we're, we're going to be talking about a couple of situations international uh, concepts: derive, detournement, and psychogeography. Uh, so derive is um, it's kind of like the intersection of art, conscious philosophy, and walking. And the the basic premise of it is you you would go into typically an urban area, but you could do this literally anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you would start walking through it, but not not in your normal way. Not not walking your normal route to work. Not walking the campus of a university like it was the campus of a university, but exploring it like it's a space that you have a completely different relationship to, like the re renavigating and renegotiating the purpose of yeah. of that particular bit of urban landscape. And I, I think that that's something that this film really successfully accomplishes. I like, mean, like it. This, it can, it makes the kind of mundane urban landscape deeply kind of uncanny mm-hmm. you know the these these seemingly never ending uh hordes of towers that are popping up everywhere do do really kind of make you kind of rethink the kind of bland sameness of urban architecture yeah and even even as an act of cinematography like the actual recording of this movie is the way that john smith uh, uh, built this film is is that, that that black tower was something that was actually visible outside of his window you know ah, where, where he was living in london it's a real tower um interesting so, that's so cool and so all of the shots of the black tower are shots that he could film around the real tower and the rest of the film kind of built itself around his experience of this tower yeah, yeah. so the fact that the character goes to a hospital was because one shot of the black tower had it by a hospital and and the fact that uh, the character goes to visit a friend in jail is because one shot of the Black Tower was over a very high wall that kind of suggested prison and the carceral state. Yeah, yeah. And even the decision to, to kill the narrator at the end was dictated by the fact that, that that shot of the Black Tower over the cemetery was literally the shot outside his window. Oh, that's fascinating. That's yeah, and, so and cool. That is a derivé. Th- that that is completely renegotiating your relationship with with the architecture and the physical space that that you live in and it's i think it's like it's it's vital that we kind of have a conscious awareness of what that relationship is right because mm-hmm. um given the extent to which individuals are now kind of surveilled and monitored and oh, um, yeah. tracked often by uh, that little device that we keep in our pocket uh, our smartphones we become it's very easy for us to become like massively predictable to become kind right. of uh very i don't i don't i don't want to get too conspiratorial here but it is like we become con- compliant consumers well i was i was listening to a uh lecture given by 
um, you know, I, I don't know how she would describe herself because I just stumbled onto her work uh, like a cryptologist and a computer scientist. But um, her name is Isis Lovecraft, which is one hell of a name. That is um, that that is that is that a real name? It's a real name. Yeah, it is a really cool name too. Like like I thought it might. I don't know. Crazy name. Awesome name. Ten out of ten. Jealous. But um, uh, I, I stumbled onto a lecture of hers where she was talking about how all of all of those kind of like warnings you see in terms of service where they're like, oh well, we'll just just track your metadata, and the government's just going to collect metadata. But she was she was kind of outlining how with metadata alone, because we are so predictable, you can directly infer, map, and understand what people are doing specifically. Oh yeah, completely. So and, so it is know, it is not quite as conspiratorial as it might seem. And I don't want to bring this back to a kind of existentialist point of view again. Oh please do. Um, this movie is very existential. But it's like if we we would probably resent the knowledge that we are so predictable yes we, uh, we would hate it to the point where we would actively disregard the truth about it yeah but the fact is like you know facebook or google or apple can draw up a kind of incredibly accurate map of who you are and what you do based on like two days of observation of you going about your daily routine mm -hmm. but it and it's like when you see it when you see your kind of life reduced to well you go here between these hours that's your favorite coffee place that's when yep. you go home that's the takeaway that's nearest your apartment like we realize that you know what we've been told is freedom we're actually settling for so little mm -hmm. um and, and, and so especially I, too like once you consider this and the larger data set of a community like it's not it's not just you as one individual you work here, you get your coffee here, you get your groceries here, uh, you know, twice a week you go to this bar. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's that. There are hundreds of thousands of people doing this. Yeah, And we absolutely. can track it like, okay, like maybe the people who go to this particular coffee shop, oh, this is an independent coffee shop. The, these people fit into this demographic. And then all of a sudden, like, you get into these situations where, like, Target is outing people's pregnancies before they even know they're pregnant. Yeah, and it's like, that's why it's so important that we kind of have this kind of chance to, to reevaluate our relationship to the place that we, that we are, you know, that we're conscious, yeah. that we're not, we're not simply kind of existing, but we are yeah, actually... We're, not, we're, pa we're active, not passive subjects to our environment. Yeah, precisely. And that, that leads me to the second uh, situation, international uh, term to, to, that we're going to bring up today. Uh, and that is psychogeography. Well, Ash, what's psychogeography? <laughs> Astute question. <laughs> so besides, besides uh, also having a really cool name and, and sounding like, you know, like psychogeography would easily be my favorite anime or possibly my favorite Gundam <laughs> if it existed. But um, I pilot the psychogeography Gundam. <laughs> But so, so the concept of psychogeography is is how does our environment on, on a geographic level impact us emotionally? That's kind yeah, what, of the what spark is the notes kind of, of what is the kind of like psychic relationship between the subject yes. and its environment, their environment, and and you know the, the Black Tower is all about negotiating what that psychological relationship is between this narrator and the architecture of the world around him turns out urban living is maybe not good for us psychologically speaking yeah i, I mean, think that's, that's definitely the, one of the things that this movie suggests you're right though it's it's something that kind of atomizes us it makes it difficult to kind of understand what it is that we that we have to do with our life it makes it you know we we become increasingly socially isolated the, the narrator mm -hmm. certainly does you know and and we become kind of haunted by the environment within which we exist yeah and to and to not to get too primitivist about this but it's it's not even necessarily urbanity itself it's not necessarily the existence of cities but it's it's cities under capitalism and cities under late capitalism that yeah, yeah. that cause these things to be giant mouse traps instead of these these wonderful expressions of human collectivity. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think 
you know, there's there's huge amounts of stuff that's been written about like the experience of wandering through the city. Um, but when you're wandering through the city because you know you're late for work and you have to make enough money so you can afford the rent to stay in the city so you can keep going to work, mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah, it's a trap. You know, it's it's a trap. It's a trap. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the la- <laughs> the last. The last uh, situation international style point I want to bring up in terms of this movie is more about the structure of this movie itself and the act of creating this movie. But it's it's <laughs> okay. uh, it's it's the the concept of detournement, right? Or mm-hmm. or detournament, if you're so, going to pronounce it incorrectly. So Ash, what is detournement? Oh, you do you just have the best questions today. <laughs> so detournement is is the idea of creating art that, that that cannot be uh consumed and repurposed by capitalism like like the, that that is essentially the the purpose of detournement is is to take take back art from capitalism and repurpose it in a way that they can't repeat the cycle and take it back and we can think about yeah. like 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 really good examples of this are like um like the song fortunate son is, is a great example of this. Like a lot of musicians yeah. have covered it and it shows up in commercials all the time here in the United States. And, and, it, and it's played at political rallies as, as kind of like a conservative love the country song, but, but it's, but it's actually an anti-war uh, song in support of class war against the rich. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's a folk song about the struggle of the working poor, but it, it can be consumed. And the same as like, what, what was it? The, I, I can't remember the year of the Olympics because I do not care about the Olympics at all. <laughs> but um, it was, <laughs> I, I think the last one that was held in England, like the song they opened to it was God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and like, like they're, they're, the song's playing and the Queen's just smiling and waving like, oh yeah, God Save Me. Nice little rock song. And you go, do you know what this is about? <laughs> right. But the point is, is like that art could be consumed by capitalism because, you know, the queen doesn't care. No, you know, it, it doesn't. A- it, 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 you know, it doesn't matter to, 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 to the monarchy that, that some like, like upstart who overdosed a million years ago made a song that was kind of rude because now they can make a ton of money off of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see the ways in which, you know, what we t- like, there's there's long been this understanding that kind of culture is in in well within a kind of certain Marxist tradition there's been this argument that kind of culture is you know has a degree of autonomy mm-hmm. away from the kind of economic sphere. Yes, um, that was something that people like Marcuse wrote about, but like Jameson points this out back in the eighties that actually culture is not autonomous and separate. Culture has kind of exploded. You know, capitalism blew it up and and shot culture into everything mm-hmm. which meant that it could easily be commodified so like you've got like uh you know god save the queen playing as the queen enters yeah. which means that it has been entirely absorbed to within the structures of kind of imperialism and, and, and British- so something as hardcore as that has just been entirely defanged yeah absolutely and and th- this movie though john smith like like, like, how like, do you I, defang this? How yeah, do you right? place I, I, this within the? I, I would be hesitant know. to say that it, it would be impossible for for a capitalist interest to turn this movie into a money generating weapon. But it would be insanely difficult. Yeah, you know, like like th- th- this movie resists being consumed in that way. This movie doesn't. This movie doesn't want to offer up anything that could be readily and easily turned into a Pepsi commercial. No, completely. Completely. And I think that's one of the things that makes it challenging, actually, mm-hmm. to, to watch because we're, we're kind of culturally conditioned to expect certain um, stylistic and aesthetic choices. Right, yeah. Our, our brains have been made spongy by Disney. And that is a much more uh, accurate way of putting it than, than my <laughs> and, rambling and also, and also incoherence. Way that might, uh, yeah, may, maybe alienate some people who enjoy like the uh, Disney who owns every single movie out there properties. Ooh, yeah, because that's what I want in my cinema. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like, like you, you you can't do a John Smith's The Black Tower crossover with the Avengers. No, not at all. Yeah, it, it it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Or you can't like make like the uh, classic rock awesome soundtrack to go over this. No, because it like, wouldn't it, work. It, 
fundamentally resists being consumed at the core of it. Would it be possible to to somehow like memify this and then consume that and like yeah, but you'd have to really just tear it apart and break it down and, and extract some element from it. There's a great uh, I can't remember it exactly, but there's this great sort of grumpy quote from uh, one of the grumpiest of the Frankfurt School, Adorno, who says that Love every visit to every visit to the cinema leaves me um, feeling stupider and meaner than I was before. And I'm like, I oh, kind I love of, Adorno so much. I know, I know. I everybody on the left is like, he'd be the worst to hang out with. He'd be no fun. But like, I could just be mad at everything with this guy. It would be great. Uh, but but you kind of get the point that he was getting at, right? Even back then, like the the propaganda function of cinema, yes, was yep. to kind of was to kind of pacify and to um, and to make us kind of compliant and good good consumers and to to you know, I don't know what he would say to kind of people getting excited over the new Marvel movie, like and going, I, I have, oh, this, I have an idea. this is so in, this is so important for me. Uh, right. I, but well, I know I'm, I'm I'm also kind of paraphrasing Adorner here because I can't remember the exact quote, but he was saying that um, there's no such thing as outsider art inside the system because by the time you've made it inside, they've already deemed that you are acceptable and worthy to make art within that system. Yeah, precisely. But something like this is so um, removed from those normal systems of commodification that I don't know if it's there completely, but you have a moment of having something that is so that is challenging that almost resists you as a viewer. Yes. That, make, that makes yes. you kind of rethink what it is cinema is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it leaves you with this kind of... There is a spectrality to it which is not entirely... Um, within that kind of logic of capitalism yeah like i so so an a an artist i would compare this film to would be david lynch right D- david lynch makes a lot of uh cinematic content that is designed to be very difficult to consume yeah but i feel that the black tower takes that to the next level like this is intensely well, difficult to consume well, I was I was thinking about a a, a different figure to compare yeah. this to, um, kind of more within the British avant-garde tradition, and that's Derek Jarman. Um, and mm. Jarman is a very famous uh, gay filmmaker who was working in the eighties, uh, and one of his um, like it's a genuinely just sort of heartbreaking and beautiful piece of cinema is the film uh, Blue which is just one static shot of a blue screen for its entire runtime. Um, and all you have, the story is, as, as, it, as it is, emerges entirely in the voiceover. Um, and it was a film that Jarman made whilst he was um, losing his sight because uh, of his uh, battle with HIV and AIDS. And it's it's all about it's all about um yeah it's about well everything i suppose <laughs> but yeah, if you want something that is kind intense. of challenging and and resists the kind of commodification of cinema and at the same time makes you reconceive what uh cinema is and can be and the way in which you can tell a story with words and images i really recommend like blue as a companion piece to this yeah, that that is that is. I, I did not think of of Blue in the context of this film, but that is a really good point. That that both yeah. of these films are are strong examples of Deternemaw and art that would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for capital to reclaim. And the reason I was thinking about Blue is it's to do with something that I was talking about right at the beginning um, when I was talking about like how do you depict nothingness? Yeah, and the Ooh, and a lot of really way that this film film does it is through just black black blackness on the screen and and it's incredibly difficult to make black interesting uh if all you have is a black frame that is like either the end or the beginning yeah it, it is it is very definitionally uh absence in cinema <laughs> yeah and and how do you what i really love about that is that like to depict nothing is paradoxically to show you potentially everything right Mm -hmm. yeah because because what is nothing if not the absence of everything Mm -hmm. which you know tips you over into that kind of infinite 
mind-obliterating psychedelic madness that Lovecraft and Ligotti write about. These these encounters with nothingness are are ultimately um I want to phrase this. They're they're encounters with the self. They're they're encounters with the world around us, right? The you know, n- nature abhors a vacuum, as it were. So when we see these black screens or these screens that just hold on blue for forever, you know, we... We, f- our, we fill them with ourselves. Yeah, our, right? our, that's, our that's minds force us to enter them. We can't leave them empty. I mean, that's why we, we're all drawn to the, to the Black Tower. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. you know, we have, to, we have to know. Right, we cannot, we cannot let it go undiscovered. Totally. Our our episode is three times the length of the movie we watched today. Uh, but a very a very happy birthday to my good Aww. friend and, and spooky comrade. Um, and yeah, this one, if if only all of my friends wanted to celebrate their birthdays by talking about the philosophy inherent in a twenty two minute <laughs> avant garde British film from the nineteen eighties <laughs> that deals with the working class relationship to urbanism. Um, I would be a very happy man if that was the case. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But yeah, hopefully this has been interesting. As I say, we'll put the uh, link to the film on YouTube in the show notes. I think Mm -hmm. that would be a good idea. Um, You should totally watch it. It It's a fascinating use of your time. Yes, Um, it is a wonderful experience to have in just 22 minutes. Uh, and you can do a lot in 22 minutes and what you should do is watch <laughs> John Smith's avant-garde 1987 horror film in question marks ha- haunting haunting film definitely a haunting, haunting as a genre but definitely yes definitely spooky as usual thank you so much for listening um, if you would like to support the show uh, your critical material support does help us find the time to keep doing this and um keep us uh, bringing you the spooky content you love, uh, please do go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. We are both on Twitter, uh, as is the show itself at twitter.com uh, slash horrorvanguard as well. Yes. Um, this we has been... Now, this, can, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say, we can now uh, announce to our Patreon. We have a new... T- our, our, our listeners, that we have a new Patreon tier. Yes, join the, join the spine gang. Yes, so so we have a new tier for five dollars. The the arcane book club is now not just John and I talking about a book, but it is a real book club that we can all read a book together and and join in and discuss the text. For for five dollars, you can join the uh, arcane book club of horror tier, and you'll have access to the book club Discord. We'll we'll be on discussing texts and we'll announce them as we read them, and then all of our insights will pour into the next uh, arcane book club of horrors episode. It's uh, there is uh, also the the Discord just for members of the Spine Gang to um, get to know one another, to have a chance to sort of chat, to build the spooky left, to share ideas and resources, or just you know hang out and talk about our favorite horror movies. Right, just be spooky together. Just be spooky together because that's sometimes all you need to do is just spend a bit of spooky time with your comrades. Um, we have some very exciting news coming for our next episode. Uh, which oh we God. may we may announce on the Discord. Yeah, um, yeah, we will be announcing this very soon. This is this is intensely exciting. So please do think about getting on board, joining the Spine Gang from just a couple of dollars a month. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much, and we will be with you next time on the next episode of Horror Vanguard. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky.